Amen, and good morning to you. It's great to see everybody. Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome once again. Ephesians chapter 6, this morning as we continue verse by verse here through the scriptures. And you know, when we sang, great is thy faithfulness, it cannot be argued just at that moment in time as you're thinking about that song that the testimony of any Christian that's been walking with God for some time now is that God is a faithful God. He really is. You go through times and you go through peaks and valleys and dry seasons and spiritual highs and all kinds of things. And your testimony as you look back over it all is that he's always faithful. And that's why it's, I think, easy to receive the exhortation that we're getting in the second half of Ephesians over the last few weeks because we know that he's a faithful, faithful God. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 here, and over the last few weeks, he's building to a crescendo, a grand finale, so to speak. Just like a fireworks show, how the fireworks show at the end, there's this grand finale, and they just let it go. And it is epic. It does not define the show, but it does leave a lasting impression. And in much the same way, the crescendo does not define the whole book, it's going to leave a lasting impression. It's going to build to a climax here. But it's not really the crux. We've been saying all along the crux of the letter could be seen in the contrast between chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3, the riches that we have in Christ. And everything is in Christ. All we have in Christ. And then we get to chapter 4 and it's walk worthy. And now it's everything as to Christ or in the Lord. So it's in Christ, that's what we are in him. Then he exhorts us to walk worthy, and now it's as a Christ. That is, all that we do as Christians, we're to do as if we were doing it to him in the process. Right there, chapter 4, walk worthy. And then we broke that down categorically, right, into bullets, so that you can remember as you read through this book again, the sections there from the beginning of chapter 4 through the end there of chapter 4, all of, uh, that's about unity there, unity in the body of Christ. And then from about the end of chapter 4 through the middle of chapter 5, purity. So it was unity, then purity, and then last week we began a section that we'll conclude this morning, which was uh, verse 22, and began with a section on harmony. So unity, purity, harmony, those are our worthy responses, how we're to walk in light of all that he's done for us. The next week, the crescendo, is that we're to walk in victory. And that begins in verses 12 to 13. I want to read it to you this morning, even though we're not going to get to it in our study, because it will help us set the stage for what we're going to look at this morning a little bit. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So another way to help you remember this book, in chapter two, remember, we're first told where we're seated. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ, right? Then you get to chapter four and we're told to walk worthy. So we're first told where we're seated. Then we get to the halfway point and we're told how we're to walk and then in chapter 6, we're told to stand. So it's seated, walk, stand. We're to stand amidst 
spiritual warfare. And Lord willing, we will finish up the book next time and take a look at that epic grand finale and putting on the whole armor of God. And you're not going to want to miss that. And that's a good time to bring someone, especially if you know somebody who is a, pro, a professing Christian but has been out of fellowship for some time. You can think of someone like that. If your brain brings something to memory right now, pray for that person. Maybe invite them next week as we go through that uh, section and talk about spiritual warfare and those kinds of things. It's very appropriate to end out this book, but it's also appropriate to end out the section that we're concluding this morning because spiritual warfare seems to be prevalent in these areas that we're looking at, in which we're being exhorted as to harmony. That is, last time, what did we look at? Marriage. This morning, what are we going to look at? The family or parents and children. And then we're also going to look at our workplaces as well. Three topics that are a part of a list that began in, well, really, verse 21 of chapter 5. In fact, you could put a semicolon after verse 21 and basically would help you to understand that everything up through verse 9 of chapter 6 is included when he says that we're to be submitting to one another in the fear of God. It'd be like a semicolon, wives submitting to husbands, husbands submitting to wives by loving them sacrificially, children to parents, parents to God, and that's what we're going to see this morning, by training and uh, disciplining their children. And then, of course, we'll end this morning with employees or bond servants submitting to their employers and employers or bond or masters submitting to God in how they treat their bond servants. So we'll get into all that this morning. But it begins with the family. It begins specifically with the relationship between parents and kids. John Wilmot, who was the Earl of Rochester in the 1600s, once said, before I was married, I had three theories about raising children. Now I have three children and no theories. And so I think that sounds about right. And I have no theories this morning. What I'm going to try to do is keep this as scriptural as possible. And I think what you'll find that's interesting is, much like God kept it really simple for husbands and wives, he gave the husbands one commandment, right? He gave the wives one commandment, and in much the same way, and I'm not saying you don't as a parent have personal convictions, and God's not going to move on your heart specifically as it relates to how you parent, but God keeps it very simple here. And I would encourage you just along those lines to do as best as you can to just allow the Word of God to speak very simply to you this morning. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. That's actually kind of funny. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, that's where the Ten Commandments are. That's God's top ten list there of commands. And this is actually what it says, that we're to honor our mother and father, and it says that we may live long on the earth. That's addressed to children. Because, you know, back in that day, you know, the punishment for disobeying your parents was death. So there wasn't a lot of disobeying your, of your parents back in that day because that was the case and because they took that kind of thing seriously. Now, in a New Testament context, though, this is still very important because as children obey their parents, as they listen to them say, hey, walk, uh, as you walk through the road, you know, look both ways before you cross the street. And hey, don't drink and don't 
smoke and don't do drugs and some of those things you would wish in this society that children would listen to their parents more so because very simply God says they may live long on the earth. The word for children there does not mean like little children necessarily. In fact, if you were to take a word that you could use as a direct translation, it probably would be the word offspring. Uh, not really in regards to any specific age per se, any son or daughter, perhaps all the way up until the point they get married. And why do I say up until the point they get married? Because we saw last time that when a husband and wife get married, they're to leave, remember their mother and father, and to be joined, so they're to leave and they're to cleave. We talked about that last week. And that's the point in which, although they still love and respect and honor their mother and father, now they're with each other and unto God. And so that's when that changes. But until then, especially as they're living under the same roof as their parents, while they're living at home, and that could go up a you know, up into the 20s or even 30s for some people, especially these days, then they are to obey. Now, one other thing I want to point out that's interesting as well is that if you read this straightforward, you just read it and go, look what it says. It says, children, obey your parents. Who's he talking to? He's talking to children, principally, right? Now, here's why I point this out. When the Apostle Paul would write a letter and that letter would make its way to a city and everyone would announce, hey, a letter has arrived from the Apostle Paul and people would be excited because they would know it would be exhortation from the Lord and they'd all gather up and they'd all make their way to the temple to be able to hear the reading of this letter and then the letter is addressed here in chapter six at least, beginning to children, assuming that, what? That children were actually in church. And I think that that's very important, especially if the word for children doesn't necessarily mean little children, but could be any person that is living under your roof, that's under your authority, that has to live by your rules. I think the exhortation, if the assumption is that children are to be in church, that Paul expected them to be in church, that we should expect that those that are living under your roof would be coming to church, you would set the tone, say, hey, bring your kids to church. And as they get older, you know, maybe that's not always so easy as it once was. And we have to kind of hang in there and try and encourage them to be in church. We have one family. There's a, a pastor who ministers on the East Coast, and they come out during the summertime and hang out with us for a few months. And his rule with his kids is they have to worship in church. And he doesn't care what the style of worship is or if they don't know the songs. You're going to be in church. You're going to worship the Lord in church, and you watch those kids, and they worship the Lord, and that's the rule that they have. I think it's a good thing. These are all things just to kind of think about along these lines. Paul assumes that the kids are in church. And I know at some point they can become teenagers, and it's a little bit harder, but I think that's the assumption made here. The word obey there means to listen attentively and respond appropriately, and in the Lord means in the fear of the Lord or for the sake of the Lord. So just like this as wives are asked to submit to their husbands as unto Christ. In the same way here, the children are asked to obey their parents in the Lord or as a part of their obedience to God, as a part of their Christian obedience, they're to obey their parents. But this is not in vogue today, right? This is absolutely not popular. Our culture shapers are doing everything they can to undermine God's will in this regard. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've been doing a somewhat unscientific study for 25, 30 years now on how television sitcoms have changed down throughout the years, how they portray 
the American family and how that is updated over time to fit the culture that we live in. And one of the things that I see that is so different, and I don't watch many of them anymore, but one of the things that is so different, if you look at a family sitcom, say from 25 years ago to today, is this portrayal of like parents as like fools. They're like dimwits. They just don't get it at all. And then the kids are brainy and bright and filled with wisdom and logic and reasoning and good sense. And that seems to be the trend today. I think it's important that we realize that what the Apostle Paul did not say is, parents, obey your children because it will make them happy and keep for a peaceful home in the long run. It doesn't say that. He's very particular here. Interesting that the Duke of Windsor once sarcastically remarked, the thing that impresses me most about America is the way that their, uh, their parents obey their children. And he said that at the end of the 19th century. He said that. So that was already in the works way back then. My old pastor had a saying every once in a while, I saw him do it all the time. If ever one of his kids wasn't really responding, just sit his son down and he'd say, let's review, I'm the dad and you're the son. And that was what he did, just say, let's start. I've tried that with my dog, but it doesn't quite work. But he would do that every single time and they would just, all right, let's reset now, let's recalibrate and kind of go over that just a little bit. Because this generation, I'm sad to say, I don't think really believes that obedience is a desirable character attribute anymore. In fact, I don't know that I ever really even hear the word used except outside of the confines of a Christian home. I don't even hear it said. It's almost being explained away as if it's not desirable, like it's not something we're supposed to do, and so very little value is placed on that today. And so you wonder sometimes then why, as children get older or as they become adults, why it is that a lot of them misbehave or rebel or have a hard time falling in line with authority of any kind, whether it's a coach in high school or at their first job. They don't understand sometimes why they don't get the promotion or et cetera. And it's amazing in light of what we know to be true. If you have a teenager, okay, if you have a teenager, then you already know that this is true, right? That a teenager gets to that place where they think they know it better than you do, right? Maybe some of you know that to be true, and uh, maybe they think that. The interesting thing about it, though, if you look at the Lord Jesus, remember last time we saw that he definitely knew more than his earthly parents, and yet he submitted to them. He was subject to them. So young people, you take a page out of your Lord's book there, to learn about how he submitted to his parents, whom he created. And I think that you could submit to your parents, especially in light of the fact that your parents have been there, done that, because they too thought that they were smarter than their parents when they were teenagers too, and they learned over time that that's not the case at all. Now, this passage is not just speaking to children. I mean, at least we can say by inference, it is speaking to the parents as well, because if the children are exhorted by the Apostle Paul by inspiration of the Spirit to obey their parents, then it must mean that the parents are being charged by God to train or teach their children obedience, which of course is a total piece of cake, right? Like it's easy for all of you to, I'm just teasing, right? It's obviously a challenge for parents to hang in there, to stick with it. This is something I, fall, I saw years ago from the Minnesota Crime 
Commission. This is not a Christian organization, okay? Listen to this, it's interesting. Quote, every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmates, toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these things, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, and not just certain children, but all children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child will grow up a criminal. That's not a Christian organization. That is the Minnesota Crime Commission. So parents, of course, I think the scriptures then would say, don't hesitate to enforce respect in the home. Sometimes I think maybe a parent believes in their mind that they're being selfish by insisting on a child to be respectful. But it's not selfish, it's utterly vital. One couple that I know well, I was talking to them a few weeks back, maybe about a month or so ago, and he told me his number one goal as a parent was to raise his children in a way that gave them the very best shot at everlasting life. What that then would mean necessarily, the very step for a believer, if you're gonna come to Christ, what's the very first thing we do? Very first thing you do is you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner in rebellion from God, right? That's the only way anyone can come to Christ. You can't just accept God's grace unless there's something to accept his grace that it's applied to, which is my rebellion from God. So it's necessary that a parent enforce respect and insist on their authority in the home so that the child understands how God operates, understands that there are rules, there's a right, there's a wrong, there are laws that we must submit ourselves to, and in order to see that we fall short, those things have to be enforced on a regular basis. Dr. Dobson once said, the parent must convince himself that dis uh, discipline is not something he does to the child, it is something he does for the child. And so uh, parents obviously have to insist on obedience. It's not just crucial to a child's development, but it's crucial to their understanding of how God operates and who he is and what his character is. And if we are going to give them the best shot that they can have at everlasting life, then that is so necessary. It is not just so that I can have peace in the home. It is so that they can understand how God works. Now, the only warning that Paul gives to parents as to how this is to be carried forth is there in verse 4. He says, in you, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So even though fathers probably are generally more connected to discipline, maybe, than mothers are, this word here for fathers is actually a word that can be translated parents in general. So most likely, since Paul is speaking to both, both parents, and in fact, some translations have it this way, he probably has in mind that he's speaking to both parents here about being careful about provoking their children as they're training them. And that's the big warning, right? Not to provoke your children. One of the things I think it would be easy for us to stand up and brainstorm a list of ways in which you can provoke your children by maybe implementing overly harsh parenting methods. But I just want to level that out a little bit by reminding us that you can also provoke your children by 
not enforcing rules and playing favorites in the home as well. And I'll give you an example from the scriptures. If you remember King David, he had a son named Amnon who raped his half-sister Tamar. And the scriptures say that David was angry, but he did nothing. He didn't do anything at all. And the result was Tamar's brother Absalom not only murdered Amnon, but then ultimately that just began a, a, a chain of events in which Absalom would lead a rebellion from the kingdom. So David's failure to correct, to enforce discipline in the home after a tragic event led to a whole bunch more tragic tragic events. And I'd say that that's probably an instance in which we could say Absalom, though he is not innocent by any stretch, was provoked by David not um, insisting on disciplining there in the home. Paul says we're to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And training, the word there, it speaks of discipline, which includes directing and correcting. And it is important that it is done on a consistent basis. And that's the idea in the text, as we're to raise them in the training and admonition, that that's an ongoing process for sure. It's important, and you parents know this to be true, that you have to hang in there and not grow weary. Like the one <laughs> mom one day was having a rough time with her son and said, okay, Billy, go ahead and do whatever you want. Let me see you disobey that. And sometimes that's just the way we feel if you go on too long that way and get frustrated along those lines. One of the great stories I heard many years ago was from our 27th president, William Howard Taft. He was at the dinner table one night and his youngest son decided that he would make a disrespectful remark to him and there was a sudden hush at the table. And then Mrs. Taft said, well, aren't you gonna punish him? And this is what he said. He said, if the remark was addressed to me as his father, he would certainly be punished. However, if he addressed it to the President of the United States, that is his constitutional privilege. <laughs> Sometimes it's just easier not to deal with some of those things. But I think the encouragement from the Apostle Paul is it is very much needed. The development of their character, helping them to understand authority in this lifetime, helping them to understand that there's a higher even accountability that they have, and that is unto God. That by submitting to their parents, they are ultimately submitting to God and that that is the person they are most accountable to in this universe is Almighty God. Now, transition to the next section and it's the same concept, the same theme that submission, submitting to one another in the fear of God ultimately is an act of obedience unto God, right? Above and beyond anything else. And so as we look at this section, verses five through nine here, same idea here. He says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now, bond servant, you may know that was the word, common word for slave in that day, but it's also the word that they would use to describe a slave by choice. And Paul referred to himself in other places as a bond servant of Christ. That was, he was a slave of his own choice for Christ. Now, most of us then, if you apply it in a contemporary context, most of us now are bond servants in that we choose to work for someone or some company. And that's why this passage can be easily applied in a day and age in which 
slavery is no longer practiced, at least in our country. Our first thought, probably when you see this, is that you would think that, well, slavery wouldn't even be addressed or discussed in the Bible because it shouldn't have ever happened. But that's not what the New Testament emphasizes. Don't get me wrong, uh, the Bible does not condone slavery, and everywhere where its principles are applied, and everywhere where its principles have been applied, slavery eventually disappears. But it must be admitted that the Bible does not concentrate on the restructuring or reformation of society. It concentrates on the regeneration of souls. And society has changed as a result of people being saved. You know, we're never encouraged to overthrow a society. We're encouraged to undermine it by obeying the Lord and by modeling for a society the way it's supposed to be or by teaching God's word and letting those principles be known within a society. Now, that's not to say that slavery wasn't a horrible thing or I couldn't stand up here and list some of the incredible atrocities that took place as slavery was being practiced in the Roman Empire. But I only bring it up, because I'm not going to get into that this morning, but I only bring it up as bad as it was in that day and as bad as it was at any time as slavery ever was, because Paul here is exhorting slaves under Roman rule. And if he is exhorting slaves under Roman rule, how much easier is it for us as Christians who are bondservants in a sense because we work for an employer, how much easier is it for us to apply this understanding to our own lives when we don't have nearly the kind of working conditions that a slave operating in the Roman Empire would have had? In other words, how much more so should we be willing to obey this when our working conditions in comparison are so much better? Because if you think that you're overworked or overregulated or under-benefited or under-appreciated, listen to what I'm going to read to you here. This notice was found in the ruins of a London office building, and it's dated 1852. I'm just going to read it to you. Number one, this firm has reduced the hours of work, and the clerical staff will now only have to be present between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. weekdays. That was after they reduced the hours of work. Number two, clothing must be of a sober, sober nature. The clerical staff will not disport themselves in raiment of bright colors, nor will they wear hose unless in good repair. Number three, a stove is provided for the benefit of the clerical staff. That's not to cook with. Coal and wood must be kept in the locker. It is recommended that each member of the clerical staff bring four pounds of coal each day during the cold weather. Number four, no member of the clerical staff may leave the room without permission from the supervisor. Number five, no talking is allowed during business hours. Really? Number six, now that the hours of business have been drastically reduced, the partaking of food is allowed between 11.30 and noon, but work will not on any account cease. Number seven, members of the clerical staff will provide their own pens. A new sharpener is available on application to the supervisor. Well, thank you for the sharpener. Number eight, the owners recognize the generosity of the new labor laws, but will expect a great rise in output of work to compensate for these near utopian conditions. It's always fascinating to me to see that kind of thing and then to think about the, 
reasons why, and I, if you've ever done this before, I'm not making fun, but the reasons why we hold a picket sign today, as opposed to the kind of working conditions that some of our great, great, great grandparents would have had back in the day, and still a far cry from being a slave in the Roman Empire, and yet Paul is exhorting those slaves. He's exhorting those slaves to serve their masters according to the flesh as to Christ. He's not saying, hey, here's what you need to do. Get a union going. You need to get those picket signs. You need to like stop working for a while, come up with these fancy sayings. No, he says, hey, you gotta do this the right way. Serve your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. That's what he expects. And by the way, it's a good thing to adopt in terms of your own mission at your workplace to have that kind of a mentality. In fact, you can borrow this if you want. I used this over the last four or five job interviews I went on before I landed here and um, staying here, so I don't have to go out and hold a picket sign anymore. The fact is, is that I use this line. If you get to the, your final job interview, I would recommend you do this. I was the one, I wasn't like the most bold kind of guy in the workplace. I really wasn't as it relates to my faith in Christ. I wish I was. So I wanted to get it out of the way from the get-go, okay? And establish what I was gonna be so that they could hold me accountable to that as a worker. And so in my final interview, when I'm just about to get the job, this is a line that I would use. I remember when I was, first time I ever used it, I was in Spokane, Washington, interviewing for the company that was the old US West. And there were four managers in the room, they're all sales managers, there was the main manager who head up the whole office, and then the three managers, and the one I was gonna be working for, that was a Christian. The others were not. And they ended with that classical question, when it's all said and done, Joe, why is it that you think that you'll be the very best candidate? We have other candidates, why should we hire you? And I said, well, the Bible says, and at that point already, the three of them had a look of horror on their face when I said the Bible says. I said, the Bible says that we're to serve our masters according to the flesh, that's you all, as unto the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you are God. It means that I'm to serve you as if I was serving God. What that means for you is that you can expect me to work hard and to work with integrity and to do my job as if God himself was watching me. So although you are free to hold me to that level of accountability, you could never, ever hold me to accountability as high as God does to me. And you could expect that from me and you could hear a pin drop in the room. And so I liked it as I continued with it the rest of my time on any other interview I was on after that, and you're free to use that. And what that means to people right away is, wow, here's somebody who is held accountable by something higher than anything that I can say, and I can expect a lot from that person. It's actually a good way to get started in your job too, because you just told them you're gonna be as good a worker as they have in the entire place. It's a wonderful thing. That's what Paul is expecting from bond servants, from slaves. So how about us out here, Silicon Valley, you know, in the kind of working conditions we have, the kind of companies a lot of us work for, we can do much the same thing. The idea behind the exhortation is that we should perform our work as if ultimately we're accounted to, accountable to Jesus Christ himself, as if Jesus Christ was standing there watching us work. And that's the idea here, he says, verse six, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart 
with goodwill doing service, again, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now, the idea there, I service, see that? I service. The idea there is that you're sort of only doing your work under the boss's eye, like when he or she is watching. That's when you kind of pick up the pace a little bit. I read somewhere that on average, employees spend 34% of their time not working. It sounds like that's gone down since when I was in the workforce. But um, because, I mean, literally, we, you get into the office and people do their work and they have these periods of time. They stand around, they're at someone's cubicle and they're talking and all these kinds of things. And that tends to be the case. I read a story about a retired man who decided that he was interested in construction and so he was watching some reconstruction at a local shopping mall where he lived and he was observing the work pattern of a man he was especially impressed with that was conscientious. He was a heavy equipment operator. And the day finally came after he'd been watching him for some time where he decided that he would approach this man and just show him how impressed he was with his work ethic and that kind of thing. And that heavy equipment operator was astonished and said to him, "Uh, you're not the supervisor? In other words, he was working hard the whole time because he was thinking that this man was watching him the whole time. And that's what was going on. The great reminder for all of us, not just in our work, but in everything that we do as Christians. Paul reminds us that we may have a tendency to be, as it said there, men pleasers. More concerned about what people think sometimes, you know, who can only see us from the outside instead of God who knows us on our hearts and everything that's going on, on the inside. And that can, by the way, result in a devastating consequence. You remember in the Gospel of John, the Bible tells us that many of the rulers believed in Jesus, but it says because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And I found that in my own life working on the job or even serving at the church, men-pleasing only takes you so far. Because, here's the reality, ready? People are not that pleased with you. It's the sad reality of this world. The opposite is true. People think that God is this brutal God who cannot be pleased and that they can please men. The exact opposite is true. You cannot please men and you can bless God by your work and by your service unto him. Isn't that sad? We try so hard to please people around us, but the reality is those people are self-consumed and unimpressed with you. And ultimately, people are impressed only by what they want to be impressed by, and God is the one who's blessed by what we do, and our purpose should be to bless him by how we do things. And so the exhortation is to do the will of God from the heart, he says, with goodwill, doing the service as the Lord and not to men. I read a story a while back from a 20th century Fox office in New York that used to tell this legend for years and years and years. The company had advertised for a salesperson and got this reply from an applicant. He said, I'm at present selling furniture at the address below. You may judge my sales ability if you will stop in to see me at any time, pretending that you're interested in buying furniture. When you come in, you can identify me by my red hair and I will have no way of identifying you. Such salesmanship as I exhibit during your visit, therefore, will be no more than my usual workday approach and not a special effort to impress 
a prospective employer. Interesting. So what was he saying? He was saying, come anytime. I won't know who you are. You'll know who I am. And I just want you to watch the way that I go about doing my work on a day-to-day basis. And despite the hundreds of applications they received for the job, they hired that guy because they knew that that guy would always be doing his job all the time. And that's what we need to do. We need to have the same approach, not just in our work, but in our activities. So sensitivity of awareness, the presence of God in our lives changes the way we go about doing things. Perhaps character is maybe best defined, as I've heard it down throughout the years, as who we are when nobody is watching. Except, of course, we know somebody is always watching, and that's why character is also a function. It's a product of what we believe to be true about God, right? My character really signifies what I believe to be true about God. Because if no one's watching, it's who I am when no one's watching because I know God is. It it tells how much faith I have that God is actually watching. And that's the idea here. Last verse, and you masters do the same things to them. That is, you're now, the masters are now the employer that he's talking to now. He's saying, in how you treat your employees, do the same things to them. Giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So equally as strong in terms of exhorting employers out as well, in terms of how they treat their employees. Now, there's a theme here as we wrap up this morning in terms of looking at this section from verses 22 of chapter 5 all the way to verse 9 of chapter six. And in this exhortation that we're to be submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to God in terms of raising their kids, employees to employers, and even employers to God in terms of how they treat their employees. And the overarching idea in terms of what is the worthy response in terms of working in harmony in light of all the things that Christ has done for us in chapters 1 through 3, and that is that we're to do whatever it is that we're supposed to do, whether it's as a husband loving my wife, or a wife submitting to her husband, or whether it's a child obeying their parents, or whether it's an employee serving their employer, we're to do it as to the Lord, as to Christ, in the Lord, all of these phrases. So we're in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, then chapters 4 through 6, we're to do things as to the Lord, or in the Lord, or as to Christ, of the Lord, all of those things. Why? Why is that the case? And here's the big theme, and this is what it's about. It is not just because God seeks harmony in the home or in the workplace. It's not just because a marriage will be better when a husband loves his wife. It's not just because a child will live longer if that child obeys their parent. But it's because, and we said it in each instance, why should a child ultimately be taught respect and authority in the home? Because the best shot that child has at everlasting life, to learn about God. Why should uh, a wife submit to her husband? Because it's the model for unbelievers around us of how Christ functions with the church and how the church is to function with Christ. Remember, it's a picture of our relationship with God. And in much the same way, use this last example and you'll see what I mean. Who's he talking to when he's talking to bond servants and masters? Who's he talking to? He's talking to slaves in the Roman Empire and their masters. Or today, 
He's talking to employees and employers, but who is he talking to? He's talking to Christians. This letter is written to Christians in Ephesus. The people that would be reading this are bondservants and masters that are Christians in Ephesus. And so that's who he is talking. This is not a better way to do home or a better way to do marriage or a better way to do work. Principally, it's not. What it is is it's an important thing that we do all that we do unto the Lord for this reason. It's been said that the workplace is the stage for the Christian life for so many people who wouldn't darken the door of a church. In other words, people who would never, ever, ever consider going to church, but they will watch Christians. They don't want to go. They don't want to hear the message. They're not ready to hear the message yet, but they will watch you because you profess Christ, which means they may come to church at some point if what they see in the workplace is something that unusually oppresses them to get them to want to wonder what it is that's different about you. So here's what they want to see, and here's a good idea. They want to see how you function on Mondays. They want to see how you function when there's a lot of pressure on the job. Or when management changes the rules and everyone's complaining, how did you handle it? Or when you're going through a tough time personally, those are the things that they're going to watch and they'll often make evaluations based on that. That's why it's so important that we do things as to Christ. By the way, that phrase, as to Christ, changes our entire perspective on how we're to do things as workers, children to parents, husband to wives, wives to husband. It reminds us that our obedience can and should be done as if we were for Jesus, if it was to Jesus, because it is. Everything we do, the most impressive people that I know, the most spiritually mature people I've ever seen, are the ones who, no matter what situation they're in, no matter what God's called them to do, they know how to do that as unto God. They know how to do that and make that a testimony to everyone around them. That's the measure, I think, of a person's spiritual maturity is to do all that they do, whatever they do, to the glory of God to glorify God by their work ethic, by the way that they love their wife, or whatever the case may be. Turn submission, or the exhortation of love, or the exhortation of obedience, or disciplining a child, or work. Turn that into worship. Turn it into an act of worship. You go to work tomorrow, you think about the Lord Jesus is watching me, I'm to do this under Christ, this is my worthy response, of who he is and what he's done for me, and I'm going to do this as my worthy response, as an act of worship unto him. The Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the big point. The big point of this whole thing is that people get saved. People can get saved by the way that you do your job. People can get saved by the way that you love your wife and the neighbors watching you. People can get saved. They can go, where do you go to church? They can ask you that. You can strike up a conversation. Yes, there's order. Yes, God's ways are always the best way. But God's ways are always the very best way to result in the possibility that someone has a better shot at everlasting life. That's why we have to do all that we do as to Christ. Amen. Father, thank you again for your word. And we thank you that you love us enough uh, to challenge us, God, even in 
the workplace, and for those that own a business here or are managers in terms of how they treat their employees and for those that are employees to how they work with their employer. We do thank you, God, for our work, Lord. It's your provision ultimately, and we do ask you would help us to be a witness, God, in the workforce, that you would use that to allow us to be a testimony uh, to everyone around us, who we work for and who we work with. But Lord, especially this morning, I just want to pray for parents. God, I lift them up to you, ask in Jesus' name a, a fresh anointing on them this morning. Pray for parents with children of all ages. God, that you would help them to hang in there and to not grow weary in well-doing, Lord. And to lean on you, Lord, in terms of these instructions for them, for correction and discipline in the home. And Lord, I know this group out here so well, and I know that they love you, and they raise their kids with every effort to raise them in your ways. And I just pray you'd encourage that in their hearts this morning, especially when we get to watch those kids and watch them profess Christ. What a joy that is. And Lord, empower them again today and help them and be with them. And give them the tools that they need to be successful. Help them to lean on you for all these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name.